All right, now I'll have you stand. It's great. You know, I was just thinking this is uh, Valentine's Sunday, and I'm going to share a very different message on Valentine's Sunday. I'm going to talk about love in a unique way. How many know that one of the expressions of this work of the Spirit is love, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love. But how many recognize there's eight other attributes, and I think they're all describing love. You could say they're distinct, but they're all connected to love, and one of them is self-control. We're going to talk about self-control today. How many say that's an unusual way of looking at love? But when you hear what I'm going to share, you'll see how loving it really is, which is totally different than the concept that we're focusing in on as a culture today. Let's pray this morning. Father, I just thank you that you are the one who speaks into our lives. And I pray today, even as we're listening, we can hear words, but I pray that you'll give us comprehension and understanding so that we can act on what we hear, that you can help us to become doers of your word and thereby experiencing the blessed, the graciousness, the goodness, the freedom, the life that your words bring to us. And it brings great joy. There's amazing effects, amazing byproduct, Lord, of walking with you and walking in victory and obedience towards you. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to continue uh, our series on the book of Proverbs, and we're all the way to chapter 29. There's only 31 chapters, so we are moving right along. The issue of control has both a positive and negative aspect to it. There's a downside and an upside to it, in other words. It's, when we try to control other people and manipulate people, that's a negative. It not only impacts others negatively, but it impacts ourselves in a negative way. What we need to understand is we can learn to control ourselves. How many know that's a positive thing? And it can be done with the empowering work of God's Spirit in our lives. And we're going to look at that a little more closely this morning. Les Parrott in his book, uh, the Control Freak. Don't you love the title of that book? I remember listening. I went to Los Angeles. I heard uh, Les and his wife teach. And then we actually brought the parrots to our church a number of years ago. And so uh, I bought his book, The Control Freak, and a number of other books, High Maintenance Relationships, and on and on. But in the, I was rereading this a little bit, and I love what he was sharing because, you know, a lot of times when we think of control, we always think of it in a negative term. But he wanted to say there's also an upside to it as well. And he brings this out... Uh, I'm having my problem here, Deb. <clears throat> Feeling in control is vital to mental and physical health. Psychologist Judith Rodin has demonstrated in experiments at Yale University how merely feeling and can control can increase the functioning of a person's immune system. Isn't that amazing? Now, they've actually done experiments in a burn unit where people who are in severe pain, that's some of the most traumatic pain is being burnt. And uh, so they were waiting for medication, but then eventually decided to let the patient self-medicate. You know what they discovered? People were not as in high degree of pain. And number two, they didn't use as much medication because they felt like they were in control. How powerful is that? As a matter of fact, control is also critical to our happiness, uh, both at home and at work. David Meyer, the author of The Pursuit of Happiness, discovered that feeling and control is one of the key traits uh, of people who are happy. How many think that's neat? So everybody wants to be a happy person. Here's, we're going to talk about that today. 
Of course, he's not saying that you control everything about your life. How many know there's some things you cannot control? We recognize that. But what he's trying to get across, the point, is that most happy people on the planet do not leave their lives to chance or luck. In other words, they don't see their lives as, you know, just randomly happening. They, you, you actually, many times you actually feel like God is in control and he's controlling and he's doing things and there's a purpose in what's happening. And they actually draw on God's enabling power to steer their boat with intention rather than being bantied about by ra- random winds. And a lot of people who feel out of control, they just despair and they give up. Where people that feel like there's a measure of control, they, they recognize they can control their attitude. They can control their response to situations. And you and I have a choice. We can either get upset and frustrated and be negative and down and griping and grumbling and complaining, or we can actually, you know, be thankful and happy and commit our concerns to God and have a very different approach to our problem and say, God, this is an opportunity for me to see you work in this situation. What can I learn from this? And have a totally different approach to the context that I'm in. And then there, on the flip side are those who are out of control. So I'm kind of giving you a little bit of a, a continuum. There's those people who are trying to control people and everything in life. That's way over here. And then there are people that are, you know, they have a feeling of control and they can control their attitudes and their responses. And then you have people over here who are out of control. These are the people who have no boundaries in their lives. They're running, you know, they're running, you know, crazy. There's no restriction. They're just doing their thing. And that group is going going to suffer tremendous difficulty and pain, as we're about to see. So Dr. Parrott goes on to say, not only is control an important part of our ability to live well, but losing control has a negative effect on our ability to function. The loss of control is driving people into doctor's offices with psychological and medical diseases at great human and economic cost. So is it any wonder that the current situation we're in right now where there's government restrictions on our lives, there's a lot of people feeling like their life is out of control. Isn't that true? And there's a lot of emotional things that are happening right now. But I want to just challenge us. I believe that we can rise above it. I believe that if we have the right attitude and the right heart and the right response, that we don't have to feel that we're sinking in despair that we can rise emotionally even above the challenges that are being presented to us. And how many think that might be an important thing right now to have the right mental attitude so we can rise above the tidal wave that's happening in our culture around us. What we're going to discover from the scriptures is that one of the results of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives is actually the development of self-control. So it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's the result of the work of the Spirit. And I love how Galatians brings it up. But the fruit of the Spirit, fruit is in singular, is love. I think the rest of it is more of an explanation of how love manifests itself. It brings joy and peace and forbearance and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. So here we are on Valentine's Sunday talking about love, but I'm talking about the expression of or the manifestation of this love is self-control. And against such, it says there is no law. In other words, there's not a law to actually, you don't need law when you have these things in operation because you have someone who's loving people and caring about others and are gentle and kind and they have self-control. So they don't need all these boundaries to keep them in. They do 
by nature the right thing. They do by nature, by the nature of the Spirit, not their human nature, by the nature of the Spirit. Now let me point out something. You know, this you read a verse like this and you think, okay, good. All I need to have God do is like get the taser gun of the Holy Spirit and just start zapping us. You know, like, you know, if I'm in short supply of self-control, you just kind of raise your hand and the taser gun of God's Spirit comes zap, 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 self-control, self-control, you know? I mean, wouldn't that be awesome if God could just zap us like that and boom, we'd have self-control? How many think that'd be neat? But God doesn't quite work that way with us. As a matter of fact, in Philippians, it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So God does not want us to be passive. He says, for it is God who works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. So what God is really doing is he's moving, his spirit comes and dwells within us, but now he wants us to exercise our will in yielding to God and actually obeying his guidance and instruction for our lives. And when I read Peter, I see it very clearly because he makes, says there, make every effort to add to your faith certain qualities. And so God is expecting us not to be lazy, but actually to learn and develop self-control with the recognition that I'm not doing this on my own. It's not willpower. It's not, you know, you know, some people have more, you know, willpower than others or more self-control than others. It's more like, hey, I'm yielding to the work of the Spirit of God so I can have self-control in my life. I'm cooperating with God. So what we're going to see here is that uh, this, the wisdom writers, which we've been reading in the book of Proverbs, are encouraging us to live, I would say, a self-control life or a disciplined life. You could say it's discipline. Those who have responsibility over others are also to help others learn self-control. So if I'm a parent or if I'm a, an employer or if I'm a leader in whatever capacity, I could be a teacher, I could be a pastor, I could be uh, an employer, I could be a manager at work, you know, in all of these areas, a civic leader, you know, a leader of a city, a province, a nation, I need to develop self-control in order for, for, one of my responsibilities would be to help others that are, I am caring for to develop the same thing. How many think help, a parent is helping their child develop self-control? How many think that might be a bit important? That's, I think it's going to be critical. We're going to see that as we're looking through chapter 29. I think it helps uh, people to become live a more effective life, a more fruitful life, a more ordered life, a happier life. Uh, it helps communities come together. It helps families stay together. It helps marriages stay healthy. But this idea uh, that we have to, you know, correct people. How many know that correction is actually a good thing when it's done properly? When we have right kind of correction, it actually helps people mature properly and develop these beautiful things. And yet, we, we, we live in a culture today that want to live unrestrained lives. They want to live in anarchy. They want to do their own thing. How many see that? And what we don't understand is the consequences of having, you know, people talk about freedom. It's all about, you know, I'm, I'm, I have my rights, you know, and I have all these freedoms. But when we have freedom taken to an extreme, what we have is anarchy and unrestraint and chaos. And what that produces inside of people and inside of communities is actually greater complexities, uh, greater entanglements, greater destructive outcomes, uh, greater addictions, 
We see uh, what happens to individuals that are living like that. They become very self-destructive and they hurt other people. Families are destroyed. Communities fall apart. We see nations go into decline as a result of that. So wise people listen to healthy correction. And we read that right off the bat here in Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 1. It says, whoever remains stiff-necked. That just means uh, you're not going to receive correction. You're just going to be stubborn about it. It says, after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. So in other words, if you're a really stubborn person and you never listen to people who are speaking into your life, trying to help you to do something better, and you refuse to listen, eventually you'll suffer for it. That's all it's saying. And we see that all the time. You know, Sometimes there's a better way. Sometimes there's a healthier way. And there's usually a, a godly way. So we're going to look at two critical issues today that we need to address in order to live wisely or in the fear of God. And I want to take a look at the first one, and it's to be a person who lives a self-controlled life. Anybody here might need a little help with self-control? You know, self-control. We could talk about it, you know, self-control with our mouth. We could talk about self-control with your emotions. How about self-control with your thought life? How about self-control with your eating habits? We could just keep going down the list, you know, right? This is really going to cover where most of us are living. So let's learn from the wisdom teachers how to live self-controlled lives. Now, we've seen the part where God's Spirit is at work in our lives, helping us with that. But now let's take a look at what Proverbs has to say. I'm going to jump down to Proverbs 25, verse 28. It says, like a, like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. Now, how many know in the ancient world you build a wall for a reason? Why would you build a wall? To protect yourself, right? And to keep unwanted intruders out. And so you want to have these boundaries in your life. Well, what it means is when you and I lack self-control, it means like we're like a community and there's no walls, there's no boundaries in our lives. And a lot of things happen to us and come from us that are really unhealthy. The broken wall creates a condition of helplessness and uselessness. We become ineffective and unfruitful. Isn't it amazing that when Peter says in his letter, he says, now I want you to add to your faith these qualities, you know, knowledge, love, brotherly kindness, these kinds of things. He says, in order to keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. Isn't that an amazing statement? So there's a lot of people who are ineffective in their life. They're unproductive in their life. They're not fruitful in their life. They're not happy. You know, people who are happy, they can see the results of the things that they're involved in and they see the outcomes as being positive. But a lot of people, they look at their lives and they're seeing outcomes and they're going, I don't like what I see. And that's, that's why we want to change. And that's what repentance is. I'm really going to change my mind and agree with God. Now, David Hubbard, who is an Old Testament scholar, says, so it is with one who cannot keep in check, and here it says, rule, translate a noun used only here, and whose verbal root means to hold back, retain his spirit. That is, his attitudes, disposition, and emotion. So what he's saying is, a person who doesn't have self-control is someone who's, who's really not handling their emotions well. They, their, their, their attitudes are wrong. Their disposition is wrong, and their emotions are, you know, they're beside themselves, and they, they're overreacting. You've never met anybody like that when there's a situation, you just start immediately overreacting. You haven't met anybody like that, have you? You know, they immediately go into that frame of mind, and he's saying that's not healthy. That's like the person who's out of control. He goes on, the virtues of self-restraint are lauded as being acts of heroism that outstrips military conquest. In other words, to govern your heart is better than taking a city. Isn't that an amazing proverb? 
to be able to control yourself is even more powerful than conquering a community. You got to conquer yourself. That's what the Proverbs is teaching us. To be out of control is to be susceptible to a wide range of dangers and to be incapacitated for any productive activity. So what we need to understand is that we're responsible for managing our emotions. And yes, we will need God's help doing that. And a little later on, I'm going to talk about how to come about doing that very thing. Now, the opposite of self-control is folly and uncontrollable outbursts. Proverbs 29, 11 says, fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. Now, I need to remind us that the category fools is someone who doesn't know God. It's a category of a person who's morally deficient. It's a category, you could say that they're not righteous. They're unlike God, so we'd call them ungodly. We could say that that person is wicked. They're choosing the wrong course as far as God is concerned. Robert Alden says the word for anger or rage here in verse 11 is the Hebrew word for wind, spirit, or mind, implying the fool gives full vent or shouts out of his mouth about things that make him mad. In other words, he just blows up. He just explodes, and that's a problem. The wise man, on the other hand, refrains from talking too much, thereby giving himself time to think through something that's bothering him before he speaks. So what does that tell you? One is very impulsive, and the other person is more contemplative. They're more reflective. They're going to say, I better think before I talk, because what I say is going to have an impact. I think that's very, very significant. So we, we know most of us in this room, if we want to please God, we're, we're children of God. We don't want to be in the, behaving like the fool. We don't want to behave like an ungodly person in our, in our emotional outbursts and responses. Wisdom teaches us to control ourselves. Richard Clifford summarizes this by saying, as always, hotheads are fools and the self-controlled are wise. And we recognize that Oftentimes, when we've said the wrong things or we've lost our cool, we've said things that we wish we hadn't said, yeah, we can always ask for forgiveness, which I think is the right thing to do, but how many know you can never undo what you just did? So I think sometimes we just, we, we, we kind of minimize the damage that we're doing with our vocabulary and words. That's what I'm trying to get at. What I'm trying to say is, you know, it's one thing to get upset and then blow a bunch of steam and then say to the person afterwards, I'm sorry, and we just keep doing this and never address that issue in our life. No, I think we got something more serious to work on on the inside. We got to address the anger issue. We got to address what's happening emotionally within us. We got to deal with that stuff. Harry Ironside says, a fool readily pours forth all he knows, regardless of the effect it will have for good or evil. A wise man discreetly guards his tongue, knowing the impropriety of hasty speech. As a matter of fact, James warns us in the New Testament, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. It's not going to produce the right effect. You know, you may have used anger as a manipulative tool to, you know, get your way, but that's really an unhealthy approach to uh, human relationships. Basically, James says, don't do that. It's not healthy. William Penn gave us, uh, sorry, William Norris penned these insightful words. He says, if your lips you would keep from slips, five things observe with care. To whom you speak, of whom you speak, and how and when and where. Is that powerful? What's he basically saying? Just be careful what you say. 
Be careful who you're talking about. Be careful you're not a gossip. Be careful you're not maligning people. He's just going on and on. He's giving us this amazing uh, insight. Just going back to managing our emotions, you know, a number of years ago, uh, over a decade ago, uh, I was doing my, you know, my annual pilgrimage through the Bible. I like to read it through, and I like taking different, you know, translations because sometimes reading it through the same translation, you can get in kind of a rhythm. But sometimes when you get a different translation, the interpreters are wrestling with words and they come up with maybe a different word. And then that always puts the brakes on for me going, I wonder how they came up with this. And I start digging a little deeper. But I was reading Eugene Peterson's translation, The Message, and I was in Ezekiel. And Ezekiel was talking about a time in the life of Israel where they had fashioned the golden calf in the wilderness. We'll talk about that later. But this is what God got really upset. Remember that? Matter of fact, God says, I'm going to destroy all these people. And Moses started pleading for God not to do that. But Ezekiel gives us an insight to this story that I think is priceless. As a matter of fact, you begin to realize it wasn't so much Moses' great prayer that hindered that, but God was showing us something of his character. And in the book of Ezekiel, God said, I was so angry, I wanted to destroy them, but I did not act on how I felt. I acted out of who I am. I acted out of my character. And I think that that's such a profound element of understanding how you and I need to respond to some maybe distressing, difficult, frustrating, irritating, you know, annoying things that can really, you know, hit all your buttons kind of thing. What, what is God saying? He said, legitimately, God gave us the emotion of anger. And I'm going to just make it to, to help you understand something. Anger is not a sin. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, it says, be angry, but don't sin. So anger is an emotion that, like God, motivates you to do something. How many know that we'd be pretty complacent if we never got upset about things? We just let everything slide. Some things we need to deal with. And so we get, God allows us to get a little agitated and disturbed and upset so that we'll get doing something about it. But what we learned there, and I shared in this message, I said, you know, there's only three ways to handle those emotions. Number one, you could try to suppress anger. And I think a lot of Christians do that because they think anger is evil. And so we just kind of shove it down and it becomes like a volcano. It just starts building up there. And then eventually one day it's released on some inconsequential thing and a person explodes in this kind of irrational behavior. That's because we've been suppressing it. And I think, I think some depression, I'm not saying all, I think some depression is actually anger turned inward. And so people are depressed, but they don't realize it's because they've been suppressing a lot of anger in their life. And now they're sad on the inside. So I'm just pointing that out. That's one cause of, not, not the only one, but that's one. And so I'm going to say that's the wrong way to deal with anger. Number two, expressing your anger and just letting it out. That may get it off your chest right away, but you're doing a lot of damage to everybody around you. You know, you're just destroying people in the process. So expressing it isn't the right approach. You go, well, then, Pastor, how do you deal with it? Well, we need to address it. First of all, we need to identify, why am I angry? It's, it's supposed to make us stop and think, why am I upset? What's causing this? Is this a legitimate thing to be concerned about, number one? Number two, what should be my response to this? Yes, I'm now motivated, but the idea is now I need to act out of who I am. Now, who am I? I'm a child of God. I need to behave like God. And so God, in that situation, he 
actually forgave them instead of destroying them. Now, he felt like punching their lights out. How many have ever had those moments you feel like, you know, taking this person out, but you decide, you know, that's not the right response. I'm going to behave like a Christian, and the Bible says to do good to those that despitefully use you. How many know that's not the normal response? That's not even a human response. That's a supernatural response, and then I need to go to God and say, Lord, what I need to do here is forgive them, and what I want to do is choke them to death. You know what I mean? That's how I feel, but I know that's the wrong response right now. I know I need to forgive them, and I, you know what? And I, I actually need to bless them, and I need to start praying for them and do good by them. How many go, that's so amazing, and see, God is teaching us something about how to handle that action, that emotion in our life. And then there's the danger of conflict with foolish people. You know, it's really difficult to, you know, deal with people who have a, a strong opinion and they're not even in the right. But there's no way to explain it to them because they're not listening to anybody. In Proverbs 29, 8, it's, it says, Mockers stir up a city, but the wise turn away anger. Verse 9, if a wise person goes to court with a fool, the fool rages and scoffs, and there is no peace. Now, that word mocker can be translated in some translations, scoffer. And I actually looked up the Hebrew word and, you know, literally it could be talked about as braggart. This is the person who's not going to listen, but they're only interested in their own opinion. You ever met people like that? You can't talk to them. They have their opinion, that's it. They're not, they're not interested in what you have to say. And you can't even reason with this person. You ever met anybody that's unreasonable? Anybody met any unreasonable people? You can't even reason with that person. Tremper Longman says, mockers are radical fools. They not only lack wisdom, they ridicule those who do, that have wisdom. When they have influence over a city, now this is scary, when officially or by their assertions, they rock it in negative ways. And so we see communities in great, they're upset, there's uproar, there's disorder, there's frustration, there's rioting. Wow, that's not exciting stuff. I don't want to be involved in that. But he goes on to say here, they're the ones who take a bad situation and they intensify it into a riot. On the other hand, the wise are cool-headed. In a bad situation, they calm tempers for the good of the community. And Dr. Walkie brings it out this way. Bruce Walkie says, the mocker brings a community's inner resentments against social injustices. So they focus on the issue of injustice, and then they focus in on things like cheating or favoritism or nepotism, which means that you're showing favoritism to somebody you're related to, to a boiling point by laughing at moral order, distorting the truth, and arousing people's baser passions through heated rhetoric. What are they doing? They're just winding people up. They're just, they're throwing gasoline on the fire. They're just, you know, emotionally stimulating, stirring people. And how many know you can get a group of people to such a pitch that after a while, there's no rationality. You can't talk to these people. They are now emotionally ready to go out and do something dangerous. And when people are in that state of being, believe me, what they're about to do is going to be destructive because they're doing things in passion that they'd never do if they were normal, in, a, in a normal state of affairs. He goes on to say, by contrast, the wise turn back anger. As a matter of fact, it says in Proverbs 15, 1, it says, a soft answer turns away wrath. By addressing the issues of the human heart, not by proposing superficial measures that cover over the internal tensions. What is he saying? He's saying, Basically, you're, you know, you're not just giving people pat answers, but you're actually saying to them, listen, we know there's a problem here and we will address it. You're, you're you know, trying to get people to calm down. You know? And they call the community to repent of wrongdoing. They confront its difficulties while trusting the sovereignty and goodness of God. 
And they do seek the well-being of others and not themselves. As Proverbs 29, 7 says, the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. So they speak with calm reason for truth and with grace, and they act kindly and charitably toward each other. Is it no wonder that Proverbs 29, 2 says, when the righteous thrive, people rejoice, and when the wicked rule, people groan. It's the truth. Because we're talking here about righteous people who are walking in wisdom, who are cool-headed, and are trying to do what's good for everybody. And how many know it's not always easy to do good for everybody? Because everybody has their interest, and they want their interest to be served. And trying to do the good for all is a lot more challenging. The key is to try to do what's right. And I think people in authority, people in positions of authority, parents, teachers, pastors, employers, civic leaders. You know what? We have to be concerned if we're in that role not to enrich ourselves at others' expense. That is wrong, intrinsically wrong, and it damages homes. It damages churches. It damages businesses. It damages communities. It damages nations. We see that. And that's why it says in verse 4, by justice a king gives a country stability, but those who are greedy for bribes tears it down. Now, what's interesting is... Uh, in verse 4, we see the leader is enriching themselves at the expense of others. Clifford, uh, Richard Clifford writes, he says, the metaphor of high and low for prosperity and decline is employed to differentiate between good and bad governance. A just king causes the land to stand up. That means it, he makes the land prosper. But one who raises taxes, it's interesting, and we'll get back to why he's, he's translating this word bribes as taxes brings down a country, which he means is the confiscatory taxation, which is really the excessive and unreasonable tax or cost, he says is the opposite of justice, the antithesis of justice. And both he and Dr. Longman uh, translate that word, by the way, in the Hebrew language, the word could be translated contributions or thing. So these guys are translating in taxes, the king is raising the taxes. Now some others, like the NIV say, a bribe, but they're, they're benefiting at the expense of the people underneath them. That's what they're really getting at. He says, a king with justice causes the land to endure, but the tax man tears it down. That's Dr. Longman's uh, rendition of that text. Uh, and then he goes on to summarize. He says, this proverb likely cannot be used to argue against all taxes as detrimental to a nation. Likely this person's taxes are to be understood as unjust because the first part of the proverb, the colon, talks about a just king. Unjust taxation takes all the energy out of the land. Samuel warned Israel when they asked for a king that they might get someone who would exploit them and take advantage of them and unjustly tax them. And that's what he was warning against. So in light of our theme of control, too much control by those in authority destroys rather than enriches those they lead. So that's back over here, trying to control other people, manipulating people for our ends. Okay, let's go to the second critical issue. This is the only other one we're going to look at, to help those that we're responsible for to become self-controlled. In other words, you can't really teach people to be self-controlled if you're not. I mean, that's true. I mean, you can't tell people what to do if you don't do it. I mean, you can read all the books you want to and tell people this is what you're supposed to do, but if you've never done it, you have no idea. You have no concept because you haven't gone through the experience of applying it for yourself. One of God's callings upon those who are given responsibility for others 
is to help them develop self-control. But we could say it's our responsibility, it will pick on parents to discipline our children. It's our responsibilities as pastors, not only to instruct, but to correct when necessary. It's true, it says so. Man of God needs to correct. You know, you, how many know that one of the things we don't like to do as a parent is correct our kids? That's, we, know, we're all, we all have that temptation. Oh, I don't want to necessarily have to do that. So those in leadership roles must learn to discipline those that re, they are responsible for, but they have to do it in a fair way, in the right way, in a gracious, in a loving way. And that's self-evident, especially when we're parenting or when we're in various leadership capacities. We're managing people, that we're not abusing people, right? We're not taking advantage of people. Because if we put too much pressure on people, what are they going to do? They're going to rebel. Listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So how do we exasperate? Well, we can do that by excessive discipline or no discipline. Both of them create this. Isn't that interesting? Excessive discipline frustrates people. But no discipline does the very same thing. I know that sounds ironic. There has to be the right level of discipline. Nor should employers do the same thing, threaten, abuse, manipulate, exploit their workers on the one side. Or on the other side, they just let everybody do what they want and create a work environment that people are stealing and cheating and lying and doing the wrong things. That's an unhealthy work environment. See, that's neglect. So what's the middle ground look like? I'm going to just read a text that we use in Ephesians. Now, this talks about slave-master relationships. I'm going to apply it as the employer-employee context. It says, and masters, treat your employees in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no favoritism with him. Here we see Paul reflect, uh, here we see Paul's words reflected in Proverbs 29, 13. The poor and the oppressor have this in common. The Lord gives sight to the eyes of them both. If a king judges the poor with fairness, his throne will be established forever. So the powerless and the powerful, basically in verse 13, are given the ability to see. But it's, you know, the idea of the, have the eyes enlightened means a little bit more than just the ability to see things. Actually, uh, Richard Clifford says, to give light to the eyes means to allow to live, as in Psalm 13, 4. Give light to my eyes, lest I sleep in death. Before God, judgments based on wealth are insignificant. See, what God is saying is be careful you, don't sh you are not guilty of showing favoritism on the basis of power and wealth. And how many know that people tend to do that? You know, we tend to, you know, a lot of times people tend to ignore people who are what we would consider they don't really matter. And what God is saying is, yeah, but I'm watching all of this. And as far as God's concerned, every person matters. We got to change the way we see people. We need to see people with value and dignity before Almighty God. And we need to treat people the same with value. We need to value everyone. You say, well, some people, they don't deserve to be treated with value, Pastor. No, they all deserve to be treated with value. We're all created in the image of God. So leaders now must avoid neglecting making others accountable because the temptation is it's hard work. How many know when you're a parent and you're making your kids do the right thing? That's a lot of work. And a lot of parents, really, they want to be their kid's friend rather than their parent. Can I just tell you something if you're a parent? Your kids will have a lot of friends. They only have one parent. 
or two parents, or maybe your blended family, four parents. But what I'm basically saying is parents are parents. You're not a friend, you're a parent. It's a different role. It's a different responsibility before God. You have a job to do. Listen to what Proverbs 29, 15 says, a rod and a reprimand impart wisdom, but a child left undisciplined disgraces its mother. Verse 17, discipline your children and they will give you peace and they will bring you the delights you desire. Actually, the temptation to neglect means that both child and parents will suffer. That's what these Proverbs are teaching. But lest we get a a wrong understanding, because I think Proverbs has been used many times to become abusive to children or abusive to other people, we need to understand the nature of discipline. And I love how Richard Clifford points it out. He says, Proverbs presumes that the greatest service a parent can render a growing child is discipline. To discipline a child is to offer guidance, reproving when necessary, but always in a context of love and of confidence in the child. Now, how many can already see that this is a whole different way of understanding discipline? So sometimes merely a word is needed. You don't have to walk around beating up people. And here's what I'm going to say to us, that this is what we need to be doing even in a work context or even in a pastoral context that we're in an environment where we want love to be the permeating situation. We want the person that we're nurturing and helping them develop discipline and self-control in their lives. We want to do it in such a way that the person feels validated and strengthened and encouraged, even though we correct them. You know, it was interesting. It was my birthday here last week, and I had my beautiful daughters FaceTime me. Thank you. I had my beautiful daughters FaceTime me on my birthday. And I'm chatting with them and I'm telling Rachel, my youngest daughter, I'm saying, hey, listen, I'm preaching on this topic. And, uh, and it's, of course, we're talking about discipline. She said, you know, Dad, there were times when you and Mom, you know, when you guys were telling me stuff that I didn't want to hear. She said, sometimes I didn't like it. Flat out. I didn't like it. I go, yeah, I know you didn't like it. I could tell you didn't like it you know, and, uh, but she said, I want to just tell you, I'm so thankful today that you and mom made that effort to discipline me, because you see, she's a teacher now, and she sees what happens. She sees people that are her peers, who their parents didn't discipline them. Their lives are literally out of control, and here she is, you know, she's actually really far ahead in life. She's succeeding like nobody's business. And she says, the reason why I'm a stable, happy person is because you guys spoke into my life and gave me good guidance and direction. You know, it wasn't always fun. I can still remember some conversations. And I love this one, and I, I jokingly say it, but, you know, every once in a while, your teenagers will come up to you and say, you know, everybody else is doing it. And I'm going, no, that's not quite a true fact. I said, not everybody does it because you're not going to do it. And that means not everybody's going to do it. You know, you know, that's just how I am as a parent. You know, that's the way I think. So you go, well, you were a little strict at times, Pastor. Yeah, I was. But you know what? The only times I said no was when I thought that that was to their detriment. So I tried to say yes to as many things as possible and only no to the things I thought were a detriment to her or to Andrea. Those are the times I said no. And those girls turned out pretty good by the grace of God and lots of prayer. (laughs) Um, So he goes on to say, a good example of loving discipline is found in chapter 23, verses 15 to 16. This saying is about the goal of the process, the formation of a loving and responsible adult. Isn't that beautiful? That the process we're trying to do as a parent is create a loving and responsible adult. 
You know, when I'm working, I have young pastors on our staff. You, you don't know this, but I meet with them every week. And we're, we're sharing this book together and we're going through these questions together. And my goal, and I have been doing this for the last two years with them, is I spend an hour with them every week, the four of them, and I'm speaking into their lives and they're sharing with me and we're sharing questions back and forth. And, and what I'm trying to do is create a, a, a sense of a loving and responsible pastoral leader. That's my goal. I'm trying to help them flourish and mature and thrive and become very successful in their ministries. But it takes work. And, you know, sometimes I've even taken, you know, some of them aside once in a while and said, hey, you can't do that. And this is why, you know, I've corrected them. You know, that may surprise you, but I, I will do that. And you may not know me well enough to know that if I'm close to you and you're doing something stupid or unhealthy, or something that I think is going to damage you, and I see it, I may come up to you and say, hey, I care about you, and you can't do that. That's unhealthy. That's going to cause you a lot of grief, and I don't want that for you. I want you to succeed. That's the goal. That should be our heart when we're in a leadership role. And then what happens so often is when we don't do this, he goes on to say the outlook's very pragmatic. It is in the self-interest of a parent to educate a child well for wise offsprings will care for their elderly parents. How many think that's a good, that's the bonus. You know, at the end of the days here, you know, when I can't do anything anymore, I'm just letting Andrea and Rachel know they got to help take care of me. So, you know, I've taken care of them for a long time and I treat them really good. So at the end, they're going to really say, dad, we're going to make sure you're taken care of, right? That's a mutual relationship. And that's kind of the thing we want to see happen. But what happens when we don't, we neglect this critical aspect of responsibility to our children? Think of King David. He neglected disciplining his kids. You see that with Absalom. Absalom murders his brother. David doesn't do anything. Later on, Absalom rebels and tries to kill his own father. How sad is that story? Because he neglected to do the right thing. And then we see what happens when leaders succumb to the pressures from people they serve and allow that to determine their actions. You know, how many know that sometimes as a leader, you're under a lot of pressure because everybody has a different idea what should be done. You know, I've been a pastor for 39 years. It's amazing how much information I've got from congregation over 39 years. People are telling me all the time what to do, you know, and I'm used to it now. I mean, I just listen and, you know, I nod my head and I'm not trying to be rude. And some things they're saying, I'm going, if they ever, if they ever followed that advice, we'd have havoc in the church. But I don't want to tell them that. So I just listen, you know, why make them feel bad? You know, that's just their viewpoint. But listen to what happens when you have the, you're trying to gain the approval of people. Somewhere down the road, that's not where I've been. And I notice here in Proverbs 29, 25, fear of man will prove to be a what? And whoever trusts in the Lord, that one gets justice. So when we let people pressure us, we're probably going to make bad decisions. And I think of that one example we just brought up, the story in the wilderness. What happens? Moses is going up to get the Ten Commandments. Remember that story? He disappears for a while. Matter of fact, he's gone for six weeks. Now, you and I know he's coming back, but how many know the people living there didn't know that? And so they got a little nervous, and they went and talked to Aaron. And I, this was a kind of a tough crowd. I'll just tell you that right now. So they came to Aaron, and uh, so when the people saw that Moses was so long and coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. They said, hey, come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. I mean, listen, we've been abandoned is what they're saying. So what's the result? Well, first of all, Moses is on the mountain. God knows what's going on. So God has a little talk to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. 
How many know Moses is in a tough shape here? I mean, he's getting scolded by God for what the people are doing down below. So Moses is telling God, you know, you don't want to kill these guys. This is that conversation from Ezekiel. You know, it sounds like, you know, God's the, you know, Moses is more compassionate than God. I don't believe that. I think this is all to teach us a lesson. Then in in verse 8, he says, they've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it. They've sacrificed to it. And they've said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Now, how many know, we go, we, we look at that story and go, what's wrong with those guys? Anyways, right? But how many here can honestly say that in your walk with God, there's been a few times where you've trusted yourself rather than God? Anybody been guilty of that? Hey, that's a golden calf. You've just built one too. So let's not get too tough on these guys. We do these things ourselves. That's called idolatry. Now, Moses comes on the scene. How many know Moses is a little upset now? He's had God scold him. He gets down there, he sees what they're doing. And this is Moses's, he sees these people and they're running wild And Aaron had let them get out of control. Isn't that interesting? We're talking about what? Self-control. But now these people are out of control, you know, and they've now become a laughingstock to their enemies. So when people are out of control in their lives, they're shaming themselves, they're shaming others, they're shaming the name of God. That's what happens when we live uh, unrestrained and a life of anarchy. And then we notice here... uh, this beautiful proverb. This is the last one we're going to look at. God says these people end up doing their own thing. And then we read this verse, in Proverbs 29, 18. It says, where there's no revelation, people cast off restraint, but blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instruction. Now, how many remember hearing this in the King James Version, 29, 18? You know what it says? Where there is no vision, the people perish. So pastor, how does the NIV translate vision into revelation and perish into cast off restraint. And so I, I went and did a little digging, and the word for revelation in the Hebrew is hazan, which some translate as vision, but in the prophetic literature, it was the word of the Lord that came to the prophets. And so this is not about the vision that you and I use for like, I'm, I have a vision to accomplish this. That's not the concept there at all. It's the idea of hearing what God has for us to do. It's, it's being revealed to us, and it really comes from God's Word. We get guidance from God's Word. Here in the Proverbs wisdom literature, Hazan speaks of a need for guidance. How many here probably need a little guidance? Anybody need guidance in your life? How many are so thankful for the Word of God that gives us guidance? So when people come to me and say, you know, God told me this or God showed me that, if it doesn't square with the Word of God, I go, sorry, buddy, I just don't buy it. Sorry, sister, I don't get it. This is the Word of the Lord. We have to, God's not going to tell you to do something that's contrary to what he's revealed. He's given us guidance through his word. And that's what we read. Blessed is the one who heeds or does wisdom instruction, as it says here. And when, where there is no hazon, there is no uh, guidance, you know, uh, translated revelation here, people cast off restraint, but it could also mean they're falling into anarchy. Isn't that kind of sad what happens? People's lives come out of order. They're just falling apart. And it kind of describes what happened in the book of Judges here in chapter 21, verse 25, which is a summary statement of the book. And if you've read the book, you go, there's a lot of problems in this book. 
In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what they saw fit. Or in other words, another translation said they did what was right in their own eyes. And are we not living in a time like that, where people today want no restraints, that people today want to just do their own thing? And aren't we noticing that, you know, we're running into all kinds of problems, that life is becoming more complex, it's more entangled, there's more addictions, there's more frustration, there's more brokenness. How many are seeing it? It's just that's the end result when you don't have people living self-controlled lives. Well, we're going to close with Paul's words here in Ephesians. And isn't it interesting? Paul writes these words and he says this. Oh, this is Bruce Welke. He says, I'll go back and just said that. He says, a nation left to its own devices can run wild just as an individual. And then Robert Alden says, the nation that ignores God's word can expect spiritual and political anarchy. I think these guys are hitting it right on the head, aren't they not? Here's what Paul says. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Where do you think he's getting these ideas from? Proverbs. Look at verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish. Do you think Paul's talking about being dumb or is he talking about being morally deficient? I think he's talking about moral deficiency. He's picking up on these proverb ideas. But understand what the Lord's will is. Here's the guidance. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, some translation, excess, unrestrained living, anarchy. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Let's stand. How many realize this morning that self-control is important? Anybody see that love is expressed by us living self-controlled lives? We're not doing our own thing. We're going to follow God's revealed word. You know, I could go down and say, Here, here's an area. You know, in your relationship with your spouse, you're a husband. What, is, what, is, what does God tell me to do as a husband? Love my wife even... As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Okay, so what happens when you and I do the wrong thing? How does God love you and I? He just goes, oh, that's it, I'm discarding you. You're out of here, man. You didn't cut the mustard. You didn't shape up. You're out, you're gone. Or does God say, no, I'm so committed to you. I'm loving you with an unconditional love. Yes, I may speak to you about this behavior, but you know what? I'm, I'm there for you. I'm going to lay down my life for you. See, how many are catching on? This is really powerful stuff. You see, if you and I act on this self-control stuff, whatever it is, you know, a lot of what we're doing that's a lack of self-control, it's because there's brokenness in our life. And what we're trying to do is instead of addressing the core issue, we start self-medicating with things like food, right? Or inappropriate thoughts. I'm just going down. I could just keep going down this list. But reality is God wants to have us, rather than living this uncontrolled life, he wants us to live a spirit-filled life. He wants you and I to be empowered by a spirit so we can do what he's guiding us to do. And how many here today say, you know what, Pastor, as you're sharing this morning, I realize I need help in the area of self-control. Anybody here, you probably need a little help in self-control. Anybody here? You know. Okay, let's pray. Let's lift our hands to God and say, Lord, I'm just asking right now that you would come, Holy Spirit, and so empower me in the areas of my life where I feel like I'm losing it. 
I feel like there's a lack of restraint. Maybe my thought life is running rampant or maybe, you know, I, I eat food just to comfort myself and not to just satisfy my hunger. Lord, whatever the thing is, I'm just picking on some things, Lord, but these are things that are real in our life and we just are avoiding addressing some really core issues in our innermost being. And so I just pray right now, maybe it's anger. Maybe we just, are, we just see, can't seem to control our emotions. We just explode. We just get upset. We, or we say things we shouldn't be saying. Whatever the issue is, Lord, we ask right now that you would so fill us with the Holy Spirit that you would be quick to stop us when we're saying or doing the wrong thing. Put a check on us immediately. May the Holy Spirit just come real quick and say, oh, you can't do that anymore. I'm going to help you overcome that. I'm going to give you self-control in this area that you've struggled with. I'm going to empower you, and I want you to actually begin to uh, cooperate with me as I'm going to help you walk through that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.